Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Well, we're going, we don't need Rose. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, I gotta warn you, I might break out into song during this episode. God help us all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, also, Phil, I should warn you, we might lose all of our listeners this episode. Well, I blame you if we do. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Listen, nobody should it's be all subjected on it's all on to you, my man. singing. That's right. Why don't you tell people, Phil, why I might break out into song? Because you're insane. <laughs> Thanks. No, Thanks, no it's because because one of the films we're doing is a bit of a musical. Well, it's a lot of musical. It's uh, it's the rundown. Yeah, the rundown starring <laughs> Dwayne Johnson. Right. Uh, no, it's. Uh, <laughs> hold on a minute. No, we'll be going after the ending of Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. Yay! Yay! Oh, I quite <laughs> like it. I, I didn't mean to sound so condescending about it, but no, I do quite like it. It looks stunning. Uh, great cast, some fantastic musical moments. Yeah, and Nicole Kidman on a trapeze. I'm yeah, you want. can't beat that, yeah. right? I know. A, that's all you need, really, in life. I, I, I would tend to agree, personally. Mm. Mm. <laughs> no, but we'll also be doing, uh, going after the ending of, well, we've already mentioned it, we're going after the ending of The Rundown, uh, which is also known as Welcome to the Jungle, here in the UK and other places. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So my understanding is it was released over in Europe as Welcome to the Jungle. Yeah. Is that correct? That's uh, how you know it? That's how I knew it, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, over here in America, I never, I, we never heard that title at all. It was yeah. just called The Rundown. So for American listeners, it's The Rundown. For our European listeners, it's uh, Welcome to the Jungle. For people in other parts of the world, I have no idea what it might have been called near you, but it's the one with The Rock and Stifler. So if that doesn't tell you what you need to know. Yeah, well, that's it. The Rock and Stifler. Yeah, but it was originally called Hell Dorado. Hell with a H. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That Dorado. I heard. Right. Then it was Welcome to the Jungle, and then the final name was The Rundown. So we got the second name over here. All right. Well, there you go. So so wherever you're listening from, now you know which movie we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. What else do we have in store today, Phil? We've also got our top 10 films for the year 1966, and we have a Mighty Morphin mini feature, which is uh, along the themes of what's been going on over in your side of the big pond over the past few weeks. Yeah. Yeah, which has got yeah. a few people talking. Just a few. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to we're going to tie into that, but in a, a completely family-friendly, non-political way. So, yeah. no yeah. worries. Yeah. But uh, some of my picks might trump yours, Mike. Well, oh, I I like what you did there. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> you mean. <laughs> yeah, so it's a uh, it's a jam-packed episode for sure. Why don't we kick things off and jump right into our endings then? Why don't we start with Moulin Rouge, Phil? How's that strike you? That sounds good to me, Mike. Do you want to give us a bit of a rundown on what happened in Moulin Rouge? Oh, you are on fire tonight, Phil. That one literally did just come to me. I like it. I'm impressed. So do you want to tell us the events of Moulin Rouge? I would love to. Spoilers ahead for people who haven't seen the film. Yes, not not the most spoilerific movie in the world, though. But yeah, true. 
So, Moulin Rouge, 2001, co-written, produced, and directed by Baz Luhrmann, starring Nicole Kidman, Ewan McGregor, Jim Broadbent, Richard Broxburg, and John Leguizamo. So, in 1900 France, writer Christian, played by Ewan McGregor, tells us his story. A story about a time, about a place, a story about the people, but above all things, a story about love. One year earlier, Christian is a young English writer in France who is drafted by a troupe of performers to help write their musical stage play, Spectacular Spectacular. He gets involved and the troupe presents their show to showman Harold Zidler, the owner of the Moulin Rouge nightclub palace thingy. Yeah. Uh, whatever you want that's, to call that's it. That's what it was called in the script. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so Christian meets Moulin Rouge's star performer, Satine, played by Nicole Kidman, who Zidler has promised to the Duke of Monroth in exchange for his financial investment in the club. Satine initially dismisses Christian and his interest in her as just a writer, but confesses her desire to get away from Moulin Rouge and become a real actress. Eventually she falls for Christian and they begin seeing each other in secret while she woos the Duke. Christian writes the show about their relationship and the Duke in thinly veiled scenes, and when she tells him that their relationship threatens the show, he writes her a secret love song. We also learn at this time that Satine is dying. Oh no. Oh no. Very sad stuff. The Duke figures out what's going on and threatens to kill Christian if Satine won't be his, forcing her to tell Christian that she doesn't love him. He believes her, but the night of the show's premiere, Christian sneaks into the club and ends up on stage with Satine during the show. He gives up on her, but she sings their song and he comes back to her. The Duke attempts to kill Christian, but is thwarted, and Satine succumbs to her illness. Before she dies, they reaffirm that they love each other, and she tells him to write their story. Which brings us back to one year later, when Christian finishes writing his tale of, quote, a love that will live forever. And that is the beautiful love story of Moulin Rouge. Very true. Very good film. So that is Moulin Rouge. Uh, Phil, you said you liked this movie. Isn't that correct? I, I did enjoy it, yes. I've only seen it the once, though. But I uh, saw it the big on the cinema. Mm. Uh, really enjoyed it. I like the way they did take modern-day songs and give them a little bit of a twist. Yeah. And I, I, I like all the actors involved as well. Well, as you may recall, Phil, it was on my top 10 list when we did 2001 back in episode 21, I think, yeah. of the year. It was, I think, my number four or five pick for the year. Uh, it is a movie that I love greatly. I've seen it many times, and I, I do think it's utterly fantastic. So if you haven't seen Moulin Rouge, it's it's definitely worth watching, even though it's a musical. What's great about it is it's all contemporary pop and rock songs that you know and love worked into this film in a really brilliant and creative way. Uh, it, it's kind of, to me, it's like the musical for people who don't like musicals. So Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good way of putting it. It's always good to see a young Obi-Wan Kenobi singing uh, <laughs> That's right. Elton John covers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's a great film. I, I do recommend it highly. So um, I uh, I do think that it's got, like I said, if you, even if you don't like musicals, it's a movie that's worth watching. So yeah. well, it's just, just seeing you know it's got gorgeous sets and everything. It's and the costume design. It's all it's an extremely well made film. Indeed, it is. Yeah. So let's find out what happens after it ends. Phil, why don't you kick things off and give us your day after? Okay. It's well, it's a year late as we know. Uh, Christian is still in Paris. He finishes his book, and now it's complete. He heads out to an opium den. Since Satine's death, he's been smoking opium more and more. But now with the book complete, he has decided to just dive right in. When he arrives at the den, he is pleased to see a re recent acquaintance there, a man of great intellect and humour. Christian likes him because when they're not in an opium days, the fellow tells tall tales of various crimes and terrible deeds. And the man's name is John Rathbone. 
and that's my day after. Okay, very intriguing. I'm curious to see where that goes with this uh, mysterious character of yours. Mm. Go on. What happens with your day after, though? All right. Well, uh, much like in yours, Christian finishes his book and then continues drinking. The drinking has gotten more and more all-encompassing since Satine died. So clearly both of us have Christian turning to some sort of controlled substance yeah, for his yeah. grief. Yeah. Then one day, as he's still passed out drunk, Harold Zidler comes to visit. Harold helps him get sober and then tells him that he needs Christian's help. The Duke of Monroth has decided he wants to buy the Moulin Rouge outright and close it down in order to make room for a new hotel. Christian asks how the Duke can force Zidler to sell if he doesn't want to, and Zidler reveals that the Duke is using his money and influence to spread the word that the Moulin Rouge is a den of indecency and immorality. Well, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it kind of was, yeah. yeah. But, you know, once that gets brought to the public light, though, it's a whole different thing, you know? Oh, very true, yeah, yeah. The attendance is dwindling, and with no ticket sales, Zidler won't be able to afford to take out advertising to combat the slanderous ads that the Duke is taking out. So Zidler tells Christian that he needs him to create a show that will become so spectacular and so popular that the crowds will flock to it despite any negative publicity. Christian realizes that his story of himself and Satine is the only thing he has that will be powerful enough to overcome any adversity and agrees to help. Well, I like it. Thank you. Can I give, you've probably already got a name for the show, but can I give you my name for the show that he writes? Please do. Spectacular, spectacular, spectacular. <laughs> like, <laughs> I like that. I like how you build on spectacular, spectacular. Yeah. How could you make it more spectacular? Right. It's very creative. Spectacular cubed. Spectacular like cubed. Yeah. On oh, nice. ice. <laughs> no, I like, I like the sound of that. Should, uh, right. I look forward to the show. All right, great. Well, let's hear what you have for your immediate aftermath. Okay. Christian is smoking more and more to try and forget the pain of losing Satine, but it never works. However, John Rathbone's tales have inspired Chris, Christian to keep on writing. This time, they are pure works of fiction, more of a pub-style of adventure thriller that he calls the Satine Chronicles, and they feature a version of Satine going on adventures around the world and doing, you know, pulp. You know what I mean, pulp, you know, big over-the-top kind of stories. Mm-hmm. Not, not something he'd usually write, but it just, it's just, I think, the opium and the tales have just, you know, hit at the right moment. Right. In a moment of sobriety, he posts some of them off to a publisher and promptly forgets about it. Some of his trends try to bring him back to a more normal life, but he either ignores them or just walks away. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right. Well, I, I, I like where I think this is heading, so I'll be curious to see if it, uh, mm. if it goes where I think it's going. But very cool. Okay. Well, what happens in your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, Christian gives the show to Zidler, and the rehearsals of the production begin. Zidler introduces Christian to Francois and Marina, the young man and woman who are playing himself and Satine. Christian is struck by Marina's beauty and is oblivious to the fact that she and Francois are clearly in love. As rehearsals continue, Christian becomes more and more obsessed with Marina, especially once she dons a red wig to play Satine as dress rehearsals kick into high gear. He also continues to drink heavily. Buzz about the show and the community begins to reach deafening proportions, and ticket pre-sales begin to soar, despite the Duke's best efforts to discredit the establishment. The night before the show opens, Christian, drunk and in a bad state, attempts to woo Marina, who is dismayed by his behavior and rebukes him. Christian, angry and insulted, storms backstage and throws a tantrum, destroying a dressing room. Then he storms out of the Moulin Rouge, leaving his friends in shock. Ooh. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Oh, Christian. Pals booze. Yeah, telling you, man. Yeah. He better get his act together. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Interesting to see if he cleans himself up in the long term. It sure will be. <laughs> Meanwhile, though, let's see what's happening in your long term. Okay. Christian begins receiving checks. 
the amounts keep getting bigger and bigger. Uh, a bit confused by all this, he opens up some of the letters which have been piling up over the past few months. Many are from his publishers asking for more of the Satine Chronicles, are they are a huge success around the world. Christian looks through his work and finds hundreds of pages for more stories. He doesn't recall writing any of them, but he starts reading and is transported to this wild world he created, where the heroine Satine has many adventures and saves the earth. He sends them off to the publisher. He reads more posts. Many are from fans saying how the Satine Chronicles helped them, inspired them, changed their lives, and what have you. Christian, seeing this and realising that there's people out there who've been touched by his work and Satine, even this idealised version of her, he decides to clean himself up. He weans himself from the opium and begins writing again. Some more of the Satine Chronicles, but other other stories, some more serious, some more some poetry, things like that. He really branches out and just lets his talent flow. He realises that Satine has reached out and touched the lives of many, and she will live on in his works forever. And that's my long term. Oh, very nice. I like it. Thank you, thank you. I was maybe thinking of turning into a, you know, an opium killer, but. I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> okay, then. What happens then with your your version of Christian? All right. Well, opening night of the show, Christian returns to the Moulin Rouge. He's still drunk from the night before, and he returns in a very dark place. This time, he's brought a gun, even if he's unsure who he plans to use it on. Rumor has it that the Duke is going to be at the performance, and Christian certainly feels a lot of anger towards him. But he also feels that Francois is standing between him and Marina. The curtain goes up and the show begins, and it's an utter crowd-pleaser. People are blown away from the very first scene. As he stands backstage and watches the production from the wings, gun in his hands, he watches Francois and Marina acting together and sees how pure and deep their love is. He flashes back to a year ago, and he finds himself back on stage in his mind, with Satine singing his song to him. He realizes that he has turned into the Duke, a broken, lonely man, and is deeply ashamed. He throws the gun away and stumbles out of the theater, tears streaming down his face. He returns home, packs his stuff, and leaves Paris that very night. Two years later, on the eve of Francois and Marina's wedding, Christian returns to Paris. This time, he's a wealthy man. When he got back to England, he stopped drinking and turned his and Satine's story into a novel, which went on to become a massive bestseller. At the wedding reception, he hands Francois and Marina an envelope. When they open it, they find a card inside along with a check for 100,000 pounds or francs or dollars or whatever you want. A lot of money. A lot of money, yeah. They open the card and inside it says, Thank you for reminding me that life is, above all things, about love. They look around to thank him, but he's gone. Fifty years later, a car pulls up at a cemetery. An old man hobbles out, making his way to a gravestone. Sits down next to it, lays a single rose across the grave, and breathes his last breath. Christian and Satine are about to be reunited for eternity. <laughs> oh, you swine. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, it's I, I have such a love for this movie. I really do. And I think it's one of the great m- movie love stories. I, I really do have a special place in my heart for it. So when I was crafting my ending, I knew, I knew what I wanted to do with it, but I, I had to end it in a way that I felt kind of, reflected that love story you know i couldn't end it in a way that had and i also couldn't have christian ending up with anybody else like i just you know to me yeah one of those one of these classic love stories yeah they can't they can't fall in love with anyone else right right to me it's it's his and satine's love was a love for the ages so i had to reflect that in my ending so i'm glad you liked it thank you yes that was very nice beautiful all right well there you go so that is moulin rouge uh phil do you have any Rougeish trivia. I can't really do much with that one. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yes, I do, and I will do it all in in song, in, a, in song, I using the tunes it. of modern day classic songs. 
So first of all, to the tune of... Uh, no, I can't keep that off. No, I'm not going to sing. <laughs> we'll not subject our listeners to that, but uh, although it would be really good. Yeah, if but, we uh, listen, we could have planned this out yeah. weeks ahead of time and done a whole musical episode. It would have been something. Wow, it would have yeah. been something, all right. I don't know what kind yeah, of something. Something but... <laughs> song for the history books of... Uh, yeah. Yes, and it was at this point that after the ending went off the air. <laughs> right. They were never heard never from heard again. from again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, the original script. Okay. <laughs> Some trivia. The original drafts of the script uh, saw Satine with a three-year-old child. And Christian was telling the story to the child, and we were seeing it all in flashback. Oh, that's interesting. John Leguizamo had to have a few weeks of physical therapy after filming due to all the squatting and the, the things he had to wear playing Toulouse-Lautrec. Right. Uh, Nicole Kidman had to be replaced in the film Panic Room because of the injuries she suffered while making Moulin Rouge. Mm. As she fractured two ribs and her knee while rehearsing a dance scene. And many of the scenes where we see her from the chest up, she's actually sat in a wheelchair. Oh, boy. I know. Yeah. You know, you know, but you know what I would say? If I was going to tell Nicole Kidman something about those injuries, I would just tell her to shake it off, shake it off. <laughs> Sorry, trying to work that whole musical <laughs> thing in. I don't know if it works or not. <laughs> well, yeah. No, no, it's uh, Well, it was something, like you said. Yeah, something. yeah, it was something. Yeah. Thanks to Taylor Swift for that one. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and also apologies to Taylor Swift for that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and also finally, last few uh, alternative actors who could have been Christian were Heath Ledger, Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, and Ronan Keating. What is that like the Swedish pronunciation? Apparently, that's how you say it. Yeah, Simon Conan. Really? And it's it's Gyllenhaal, Gyllenhaal, something like that. Ah. Well, Jake. Anyway, he could have been it, and sure. other Satines could have been Catherine Zeta-Jones, Kate Winslet, Hilary Swank, Renee Zellweger, Drew Barrymore. Charlene Spatiri, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, and Courtney Love. Wow. Mm. That is an eclectic mix. Yes. It would have been some very different films with a, a mix of those people. Yes, for sure. Mm. Especially some of the, yeah, well, Courtney Love, that's what we were all thinking. <laughs> right. <laughs> You'd still want to watch it just to see, you know. Yeah, it'd be a whole different movie, though. Yeah, yeah. Be a, more of a, a little bit more of a train wreck, I think. Yeah. Well, I'm rude with a train wreck. Right, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and that's uh, Moulin Rouge. Well, there you go then. So why don't we move on to the rundown slash Welcome to the Jungle slash Hel Dorado slash whatever else you want to call it. Let's move on to that movie with The Rock and Stifler. Yeah, The Rock and Stifler. I'm just going to call it that from now on. Yeah, The Rock and Stifler. There you go. I wouldn't mind seeing a film, you know, with stylized version of The Rock and Stifler, the character. That'd be good. Yeah, yeah. That'd be fun. Okay, 2003, Welcome to the Jungle, directed by Peter Berg, uh, starring Dwayne Johnson, Sean William Scott, Christopher Walken, Rosario Dawson, and lots of other familiar faces in their sporting roles. Lots, lots of those kind of actors who you go, oh, that's what's his name? I've no idea what his name is, but I've seen him in lots of things. Right. So uh, we have a character called Beck, played by Dwayne Johnson, who's a bounty hunter, but he wants to be a chef and open his own restaurant. So he wants to get out of the bounty hunter business as soon as he can. He takes one last bounty from his boss or employer, or one of his regular clients, a guy called Walker. The job is to go find Walker's son, Travis, played by Sean William Scott, who's somewhere in Brazil. Beck goes to Brazil and ends up in a town called El Dorado, where he meets the head of a mining operation, and Mr. Hatcher, played by Christopher Walken. Hatcher wants Travis, as Travis has found El Gato do Diablo, a golden artifact which is uh, made of gold and also important to the indigenous population. Beck ends up finding Travis, and all's going swimmingly, but after crashing a jeep and running with some monkeys, Beck and Travis end up at a camp of the local resistance movement led by 
Mariana, played by Rosario Dawson. Beck makes Mariana a deal. If she helps him get Travis to the airfield, she can have the gato. Uh, but she uses a fruit called Con Lobo to paralyze Travis and Beck and takes the gato, the, uh, the treasure. However, Mariana gets captured by Hatcher. Travis and Beck go to rescue her. And using a cow stampede for cover, Hatcher confronts Beck. Uh, but Beck gives him a chance to leave town. Hatcher refuses and is shot by the townsfolk. Travis ends up giving Gatto to Mariana and leaves town with Beck. Travis is delivered to his dad, who uh, verbally and physically abuses him. So Beck steps in and asks to celebrate with her, Walker and the, the men, and gives Walker and everyone some con lobos, which paralyzes them all. But Beck and Travis leave and don't look back. And that's the rundown Welcome to the Jungle, Hell Dorado. Nicely done. Thank you. I should mention also, uh, only because it may or may not tie into my endings at all, there is a pretty well-known scene in the film where Dwayne Johnson is in a nightclub and he passes by a guy and it's Arnold Schwarzenegger and they kind of look at each other and Arnold Schwarzenegger like nods or whatever at him. Yeah, it was like the passing of the baton, wasn't it? Right, right, exactly. So just thought I'd mention that. Yeah, that's worth mentioning. I was going to mention it in the, uh, this well, there's a little bit about the, in the trivia at the end, but yeah. Okay, so that's uh, the rundown. So what have you got for your day after? All right, well, after leaving Travis's dad, Beck and Travis head to a bar where Beck orders a whiskey and Travis orders a milk. Chocolate. Make it a double. (laughs) Travis is grateful for Beck's help, but Beck is despondent. This was his one chance to get out of the business and open his restaurant and live a normal life. But he also realizes that Travis's dad is a scumbag and he couldn't just let him beat Travis down. Finally, Travis reveals that he thinks he can help. Beck thinks that Travis means he can access his dad's money, but Travis instead tells him that he's tracked down an extremely rare treasure in the Himalayas. While he wants to bring the statue itself to civilization for study and museum preservation, he also believes there's a lot of gold with it, and he has no problem with Beck keeping that for himself. Beck agrees, and they head out to go get prepared for their trip. As they're leaving the bar, a woman with her brown hair pulled back into a ponytail, wearing khaki shorts and a blue-green tank top and a British accent, walks in. <laughs> Beck and the lady eye each other for a moment, and then he and Travis and then he and Travis make their way to the airport. <laughs> nice. And that's my day after. I like it. Thank you. What do you have for your day after? Okay, well, uh, uh, both Travis and Beck realize they need to get as far away from Walker as they can. But they haven't got much money. Like uh, like yours, Beck is just fed up. He had plans of opening his own restaurant. That's all gone out the water now. He did have some savings, but not enough to do what he wanted. However, while they're walking, trying to get away, Travis says he has a lead on an ancient artifact in Egypt, which could be worth quite a bit of money. Beck doesn't really want to go, but he can't think what else he can do. He doesn't want to do any more bounty huntering. Bounty hunter? Bounty huntering? Yeah, I like yeah. that. Bounty hunting? Yeah, d- bounty hunting. Yeah, good God. <laughs> What's wrong with me? Uh, bounty hunting. What the hell was I thinking? Uh, as he doesn't want to do any more bounty hunting that's okay phil don't don't worry about it just take a deep breath and shake it off shake it off (laughs) (sighs) well that just got way worse (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) okay but as uh, beck doesn't want to do any more bounty hunting and with uh, no other idea what to do he uh, he foolishly says that he will help travis find his ancient artifact so they hail a taxi head off to the airport get tickets and head over to Egypt. And that's my day after. Oh, well, I see some similarities in our uh, in our endings so far. <laughs> yes, so yes, yes. I wonder how, how far the similarities are going to go today. We shall have to wait and see. What have you got for your immediate aftermath? All right, well, Beck and Travis arrive in the Himalayas. In the airport, Beck passes by an old man who's babbling to anyone who will listen. He grabs Beck by the shoulders and says, Watch out for those yetis. They'll come after you. Then he mumbles, Of course, it's better than fighting mummies. 
and he wanders off. <laughs> Beck and Travis move on and set off in search of their prize. Zeus's Folly, a small statue carved out of pure jade that has been lost for generations. Travis tells Beck how he came across a clue to its whereabouts while down in South America, and he's sure he knows exactly where it is. After a couple of days of travel into the mountains, Travis and Beck end up where the hidden cave is supposed to be and nothing. There's no cave, no statue, nothing. Beck loses his temper and flips out on Travis, yelling about how he's ruined his life. In anger, he punches the side of the mountain, and a strange rumbling sound begins. A hidden door is revealed, and Beck and Travis look at each other in amazement. Inside is a hidden cave, just as Travis had said, and they find the jade statue as well as piles of gold coins. Travis sets to work wrapping the statue up for travel, while Beck fills his pack with as much gold as he can carry. As they're preparing to leave, a shadow falls over the door. Dun, dun, dun. Ooh. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Keep you in suspense. Okay. Hmm. Who's the shadow going to be? Well, I'm hoping it's not whoever is in yours, but we'll find out. Hmm. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Could be. Uh, okay. So they make it to Egypt, and Travis begins making inquiries about the artifact. Uh, days go by, and whenever Beck asks about it, Travis gives vague answers. And there's lots of witty banter, you know, a bit of anger, you know, occasional little uh, fight. But uh, things things get move on. Beck, he ends up getting a job at a local restaurant as a chef. He needs to fill his time doing something. He wanted his own place, but at least this keeps him in practice. Beck realises a few days have gone by, and he hasn't, he hasn't heard or seen from Travis. He begins to worry. But then, suddenly, Travis turns up saying they have to go. They have to go right now. He's had a lead on the artefact, which is called the Scepter of Matthias who was an ancient Egyptian king. On their rush journey through the streets of Cairo, they are attacked by men who have strange tattoos on their cheeks. Beck fights them off, but when they see his face, the attackers gasp in shock and then run off. Beck and Travis get in a jeep that Travis hired and they drive off into the desert. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right. Well, so clearly we both decided to continue along the adventure path. Just yeah, mine went yeah. to the Himalayas and yours went to Egypt. So, Yes. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll have to see how they end up. Mm, it could go many different ways, I think. It could indeed. Okay, then. So what's uh, what did the guys find in your long term? So somebody finally found it, a voice says. Beck and Travis look up to see an old man standing in the doorway. He's silhouetted by the light, but they can make out his brown leather jacket and fedora hat. <laughs> Who are you? Travis asks. It's not important, the man replies. What is important is that that artifact doesn't fall into the wrong hands. It's immeasurably powerful. I've been trying to find it for years. I knew it was here, but I could never get that damn door open. He throws a look at Beck and says, Thanks, champ. You must have fists of solid rock. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, couldn't resist. <laughs> he continues, Look, I can take that artifact and put it somewhere safe and secure where the wrong people will never be able to reach it. Beck steps forward and says, How do we know you're not just trying to steal it for yourself? The man steps forward and begins to speak again, but as the light hits his face, Travis sees the scar on his chin and recognizes him. It's all right, Beck, he tells him. This guy's the real deal. Thanks, kid, the man says. Beck and Travis give the statue to the man who thanks them and leaves the cave. Beck shrugs, hefts his sack full of gold, and the two of them leave the cave to hike back to civilization. What now, Travis asks Beck. Time to open that restaurant? I was thinking of maybe something a little different, Beck replies. A few months later, at the offices of Adventure Inc., Travis and Beck's new treasure hunting business, they receive a package. They open it, and inside they find a bullwhip. The note alongside it says, Here you go, kid. I think you'll have more use for this than I will these days. Thanks again. Beck looks puzzled, but Travis grins. Have a seat, he says to Beck. Let me tell you a story about how adventure got its name. And that's the end. Oh, very good. I like that. Thank you. 
Yeah, lots of little nods to all the, the adventurers and treasure seekers. All right, so I'm I'm uh, I'm curious to see where yours is going to go, Phil. So bring us home with your long term. Okay, after a series of misadventures involving a rampant camel, angry natives, quicksand, gunfights with treasure hunters, and more, Beck and Travis end up finding the treasure of Mateus, a scepter in the shape of a scorpion. Travis, who's looking at a statue of Mateus the King, says that there is a similarity between the ancient king and Beck, <laughs> but Beck doesn't see it. I like it. He tells him to stop being so stupid. <laughs> uh, when they take the uh, the scepter from the altar, it opens a doorway to a hidden valley. And there in the distance, they see smoke. Travis says, it looks like campfires. Beck asks, can you smell what they're cooking? <laughs> Record scratch. Beck looks at the camera, fade to black. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I couldn't, I couldn't come up with a final thing. So I just thought... Yeah, let's go with that. I like it. I like it. Not, <laughs> not only is it is it very funny, but it's actually, I think it's very true to the spirit of the film itself because it does have kind of an irreverent sort of yeah, look to yeah. it. It's, it's, it's not a film that takes itself too seriously. Yeah, and it's quite knowing about who's in the film and what have you with the whole Arnie thing and stuff like that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Very, very nice. Thank <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> oh, that's good. All right, Phil. So why don't you welcome us to the trivia and uh, share what you've got for The Rundown or Welcome to the Jungle or Hell Dorado or whatever. The, the, the Rock and Stifler. Okay, yeah, the, the Rock and Stifler movie. Okay, uh, Dwayne Johnson's stunt double was actually his cousin, uh, Tamoe Reed, I think his name was. But he mm-hmm. broke his ankle on a scene where Travis and Beck are falling down the hillside with the Jeep. John Greer's character wears a scorpion necklace, which is the same as Men on War in The Scorpion King. Huh. And Arnold's cameo was filmed the same day that he filmed his appearance as the Terminator for the Super Bowl. Ah, that's cool. Yes. Busy day. Uh, Yeah, very busy day. And that is the rundown. Yes, so that's going to wrap up our endings for Moulin Rouge and the Rock and Stifler movie. Hopefully you enjoyed them. But for now, why don't we move on to our Mighty Morphing mini feature. Phil, why don't you tell people what we are doing today? People may have been aware that over in the United States of America, they've been voting for... I think it was the president's? Some, something like that, some was sort it, of political It was office, a position yeah. in government, yeah. You either agree or disagree with, with whoever got into power, and you either agree or disagree with many people on all the social media channels. <laughs> right, but, that about sums it up. Yeah, that's about it, yeah. But we thought we would uh, go with it, not with the results, but we'll go with the, uh, the whole thing, presidential. And we've come up with a Mighty Morphin Many feature called Potential POTUS Picks. Or presidential potentialities. Yes, that's we we like both names. So this this mm. week you get two names to choose from, yeah. all of which feature alliteration. Our favorite, our favorite yes. thing. Yeah, yeah. So presidential potentialities of film. <laughs> if you're listening to a episode a couple of weeks ago, you'll get that reference. So go back and listen to it because it was good. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah. So in this one, we're just gonna pick a. We've picked a couple of people, a couple of actors, people involved in the film business who we would like to see as the real life actual presidents. Of the United States of America, not not a not in any of the films or TV, but actually, you know, sitting there in the Oval Office, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Like, if a, if a, if a living, breathing actor was to run for president right now, who as if that's going to happen, right. as if an actor could ever be president, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, who who do we think would make for a good president? So I thought, we thought this could be interesting. Yeah, we just we had we had a couple of rules though where they couldn't have been president on film or TV already, right? But but we, we might not we might have forgotten the role they were in. So you know, pardon us for that. All right, Phil, well, since you're coming from the outsider's perspective in this particular presidential race, why don't you share your pick first? Okay, I'd like to pick, uh, my first serious pick was Sigourney Weaver. Oh, I like it. She's got a good head on her shoulders. She takes no crap. Right. 
uh, female president as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe, you know, some quite a few people would like that. Yep. That'd be quite kind of cool. Yep. And I think she'd be very good at the job. As we can see, she can she can deal with uh, various situations of peril. Yeah. And she can she's played a few leaders in various things. Often a bit dodgy though, because she's like the leader in uh, Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I think she'd be a good pick. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Actually, yeah. she's yeah. a very intelligent lady for sure. Yeah. I think she'd be an excellent pick. So who who have you got for yours? All right. Well, my first pick will come as as literally no surprise to anybody who's listened to this podcast for a while, and it is. Robert Redford, because uh, yeah. not just because I love Robert Redford, but when I think of people who have like a presidential air to them, you know, people who I think of as being very, you know, thoughtful and intellectual and, you know, quietly powerful, Robert Redford fits that bill. You know, he's older now. You know, he's not acting as much as he as he used to be. He's kind of in that sort of very classic presidential demographic. You know, he's in like his late 70s, I think. And he's, you yeah, know, yeah. He's, he's very like kind of, you know, he, he looks a little weathered now. Nowadays, but you know, you still, <laughs> you still like get the feeling that if Robert Redford walks into a room, he's going to command a lot of respect. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like he just yeah. seems to, to me to have that presidential air yeah. about him, and I think that's I think that's important. And I think he, he's also, you know, he he started the Sundance Film Festival. He knows how to get things done. So I think he'd make a good a good president. I would definitely mm-hmm. vote for Robert Redford. Plus, oh, I would definitely he's devilishly vote. handsome. Yes, yes, can't fault can't fault any of that. So there you go. Redford Newman, 2020. I mean, Newman would be difficult to pull off, but. <laughs> you know, we can figure something out. Well, computer technology and CGI. That's right. We do a hologram. Is. You know. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Okay. All right. Well, no, I like that. I like that one. Thank you. How about your second pick then? My second one is Jeff Goldblum. Wow, interesting choice, but I like yes. it. Yes, because again, he's another intelligent man. He's uh, he's got a good way of, you know, talking. I'd like to do an impression of him, but I really can't do an impression of him. <laughs> right, I'd love right. to be able to, because he's. Uh, you know, particular. You know, life will find a way, and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. He he often plays a scientist, so I'm sure he's big into science because we'd always I always think they should need to get more focus on the sciences and you know the potentials of what we can do with the medical and space and all that kind of thing. So I think he'd be you know he'd be supporting all of that. Uh, and I just I just love to see him though in uh, debates with other uh, foreign leaders. You know, imagine you know talking to Putin and stuff and Putin just be going, what, what, what's he talking about? What's he doing? Why does he keep <laughs> right. pausing? It's mainly, mainly I just like to see him for that. You know, the way he talks to the way he talks and the way he talks to the leaders, I just think it'd be brilliant. Sure. And you could have uh, William Shatner as his vice president. Oh, the two I, of them. God, that'd be brilliant. <laughs> could you imagine that? How do yeah, you the, feel, Bill, about yeah. this? <laughs> I think that it's a complex issue. Yeah, any, just... any speech they do would be like, you know, three times as long as normal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very good. Very good choice, though. I like oh, yeah. it. So, but no, actually, no, Sigourney Weaver with Jeff Goldblum as the, the VP. There you that go. Actually That's could, a that powerful ticket. Well. Yeah. Boy, you know, it's funny. If we were smart, we could have just picked, made one pick with our with our president and vice president candidate, but clearly we didn't think of that, so. No, no. That's because that's, that's why we can never be president. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I couldn't be anyway because... Well, you no, know. you definitely couldn't. No, no. Well, you could be prime minister. And I could God, I wouldn't want that job, could. no. No. <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah. I'd be too good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who have you got for your last pick? All right. Well, so this pick, I actually, I, you know, I don't want to say I took it seriously because I think all of our picks were serious. But this is one mm-hmm. where I think actually kind of like maybe has some potential. I don't know. But okay. it is Matt Damon. And before oh, you okay. say, Matt Damon. Uh, <laughs> uh, Damn you know, you. I was literally <laughs> taking a breath to go, Matt Damon. Right, right. Um, 
the thing about Matt Damon is uh, Matt he is Damon. thank you, thank you. He is uh, a very smart guy. He's very politically yeah. active. You know, he, yeah. he he is supports a lot of really important causes, like you know, getting clean water to third world nations where they don't have access to clean water. You know, he does a lot of charity work. Uh, he's very charismatic. You know, he certainly is good looking. I think he would get a lot of the popular vote because people really like him. Um, and he's also really down to earth and really humble. And I think when you put all those combinations together, you know, like Ben Affleck is also really, uh, really politically active, but he's more polarizing. A lot of people just don't like him for some reason. But you never hear anybody saying like, man, I really hate that Matt Damon. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. everyone likes Matt Damon. I actually had the chance to meet him recently, and I can tell you he is every bit as like charming and personable and funny and and humble and down to earth and just plain awesome in person as as you would hope that he is. And I think if a guy like that could run for president, I think he could win it in a landslide. So uh, I think so. I think Matt Damon would make a good choice. So excellent point. Yeah, I think he would. Maybe when he gets a little older, you know. He yeah, yeah, running. yeah. So yeah. So Matt, we know you're listening. You yes. know, maybe consider it. Yeah, yeah. Matt Damon would uh, he'd be making an excellent uh, president. Yeah, yeah. I think I think he could actually. So yeah. we'll see what happens in the yeah, future. I'm, I'm if sh- he ever I'm runs sh- for president, though, I'm claiming that I called it. Yeah, it's your. your you should be on the ticket as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'll just be like his PR guy or something. You know. Yeah. I'll do. You could be like the Cal Pan. Yeah. Right. 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 Thing, exactly. Yeah. But uh, I'm sure there's people out there listening. Uh, let us know who you, which actors you would like to see as real life world leaders who who would be good who'd be really good in the job for real but also who would be good just for the hell of it who would you like to see right exactly all right well that's going to wrap that up let's move on then to 100 years of film in 100 episodes and this week we are doing 1966 so phil why don't you climb into your famous time machine and take us back to the year of 1966. Okay, let's go way back to 1966, where the Prime Minister in uh, Great Britain was Harold Wilson, and the President was Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, The Vietnam War was going on, uh, but lots of other things were happening as well. We had the first SR-71 Blackbird spy plane going into service, uh, which is cool. I always liked the Blackbird, always very cool. uh, Yeah, I did too. Those were were super awesome. Uh, A B-52 hit a KC-135 Stratotanker over Spain, uh, causing it to drop three 70 kiloton hydrogen bombs. Obviously, they didn't blow up. Good thing. But uh, that, that's a hell of a thing. That, that could have yeah. that could have changed the way the world went. Uh, definitely. Uh, Indira Gandhi was elected Prime Minister of India. Uh, the final episodes of Mr. Ed, the Flintstones, and the Dick Van Dyke show aired. Space probe Venera 3 crashed on Venus, which was the first time uh, we had managed to get a, a spacecraft onto another planet. John Lennon said the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Yeah, that went over really well. Yeah, yeah. He, then, he later apologized. Uh, later on in the year, saying he didn't mean it in a religious way. He was just going on, you know. Right. I think we all got it. Yeah. Martin Luther King Jr. made his first speech on the Vietnam War. It's a small world opened at Disneyland. Another opportunity for me to uh, to reinforce the musical nature of this episode, but I think I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dark Shadows premiered on ABC. Groundbreaking took place for the World Trade Center. Star Trek debuted on NBC. Now that... That is truly memorable, mm-hmm. truly noteworthy. Yeah, another sci-fi. We had the first regeneration of Doctor Who yeah. when William Hartnell became Patrick Troughton. And also, England beat Germany 4-2 to win the World Cup. <laughs> I I didn't notice any additional pride in your voice whatsoever there, <laughs> Phil. I, I like how you delivered that in a purely yes. impassive way. That's very professional of you. Yes, they think it's all over. It is now. <laughs> But that was 1966. Excellent. And also we had lots, quite a few famous faces born. But first of all, we lost 
Buster Keaton, Montgomery Clift, and Walt Disney. Although Walt Disney could be frozen somewhere. You know, That's right. We might not have lost them all together. But uh, 1966 also saw the births of Patrick Dempsey, uh, Neil McDonough, Cindy Crawford, Billy Zane, mighty Billy Zane, yes. Zack Snyder, Robin Wright, Helena Bonham Carter, Stephen Baldwin, John Cusack, Mary Stuart Masterson, Claudia Wells, Dean Kane, Halle Berry, Selma Hayek, John Favreau, Adam Sandler, Toby Jones, Vincent Cassell, and Kiefer Sutherland. Wow. Yeah. Definitely some 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 uh, big names in that bunch. Yeah, sure. yeah. And again, some of them you just didn't think they were the same, you know, born the same. Yes, some look so old compared to others. Crazy. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, but that's 1966. Okay, well, why don't you jump into things then and give us your number 10? Okay, my number 10 is Armand Flint, which was a parody of James Bond starring James Coburn as a spy called Derek Flint fighting uh, a bunch of scientists who are trying to blackmail the world with a weather control machine. It's cheesy, it's crazy, it's, you know, it's typical playboy spy kind of action. It's got gadgets, it's got James Coburn's being cool, surrounded by loads of lovely women, some some good little fight scenes, some cheesy fight scenes. It's all, it's, it's actually, it's a little bit naff, but I remember seeing it and just going, just enjoying the hell out of it. Very good choice. Well, my number 10 pick, uh, as well as my number nine and my number eight, are going to reveal to you that maybe I haven't seen as many movies from 1966 <laughs> as, I, as I could have because I'm sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel here. Uh, all films I enjoy, but not ones that I'm going to say would necessarily end up on a real top 10 list. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Yeah, because you haven't, you know, there's lots of films I hadn't seen. Right. As well, but I, I have seen lots of the, some quite a few good ones, though. But, uh, right. you know, it's easily well, done, though, in these, these years. Yeah, so my number 10 pick is, oh, I can't believe I'll say this out loud. It's The Ghost and Mr. Chicken, starring Get out. Don, Get out Don Knotts. Get out. Get out. <laughs> and the only reason it made my list, besides lack of other movies to include on my list, is that I do have fond memories of watching this movie as a kid. Now, have I seen it since I was a kid? <laughs> no, I have not. It's probably terrible, but I do remember it quite fondly. I did like Don Knotts quite a bit when I was a kid, and so... Uh, I made it into my list at number 10. Okay. I'm not proud, but it's on there. No, no. That's, you liked it when you were a kid. That's fair enough. And you saw exactly. the film, so that's good. Okay. My number nine is a film called Seconds, which is like a sci-fi horror drama. stars Rock Hudson and was directed by John Frankenheim. It's all about a guy played by John Randolph to begin with. He's a, he's a middle-aged man. He's very successful in his career, but he's sort of his life... He feels like his life, his, uh, his love for his wife's gone anymore. He just feels like his life's coming to a close. He's approached by a secret organization called The Company who say they can give him a second chance at life uh, by giving him the body of a young man, which is Rock Hudson. So basically, they're giving him a body transplant. It all gets a bit weird, and but it's uh, it, it's shot, shot in black and white. The way it is filmed has got some great use of camera lenses and great framing as well it's worth a watch it's uh, not it won't be to everybody else everybody's taste but it's it's definitely a film worth checking out if you haven't seen it it's one of those one of those dark depressing sci-fi films that they did in the 60s and the 70s yeah you know uh so i i mean i know i just said the ghost of mr chicken but this one didn't actually make my list and here's here's why it's a movie that i appreciate yeah but it's yeah. not a movie that i really enjoy yeah i do i do uh, you know, I do think it's an interesting film, and it, it certainly has a lot of really creative filmmaking behind it. But it's just a movie that leaves me cold. So, it, it, to some extent, it did leave me cold. But I just, I just like the way it was, it was done and and the story. Oh, and also had opening titles by Saul Bass, which was always cool. Absolutely. Well, my number nine, continuing my theme of embarrassing myself in a public forum, is Munster Go Home, and it is the 
TV, the movie of the Munsters. Oh, yeah. I think, <laughs> the popular I think I've seen that. I don't, TV yeah. show, right, which is uh, filmed in color. Uh, you know, once again, hearkening back to my childhood where I remember watching this movie. I was a big fan of the Munsters TV show growing up. And I just, you know, this is a movie that I enjoyed. I just really remember the big race car chase scene with, with Herman Munster in a race in a race car. And, you know, I just uh, I always love them. I have a soft spot for them. And uh, so this movie was kind of the, to me as a kid, always watching like the black and white half hour episodes. This was like the big color, you know, spectacular version of it. So yeah, yeah. Um, once again, I'm, I'm letting my childhood steer the ship <laughs> for a few of my first uh, picks here. No, no good picking. I always liked the, the Monsters TV show. Uh, not as much as the, I always preferred the Adams Family, though. But likewise, yeah. but I did enjoy the Monsters yeah, as yeah. well. But yeah, okay. Uh, my number eight is Fahrenheit Four Five One, directed by Francois Truffaut, based on the 1950 novel by Ray Bradbury. All about uh, you know a dystopian future where literature is burnt by firemen, and it's one where we have a fireman who realizes the value of literature, and his life has changed, and he tries to fight the system as best he can. And it's a, it's a big film, well, big message anyway within the film. It was Truffaut's first colour film and his only English language film. It's a beautiful looking film. It's also quite, as you said, with a second, it's quite a cold film. But that's all part of the actual, you know, society that's been set up and the way it, the way it is. But it's a fantastic movie and one I do like quite a lot. As you may have been able to tell by some of my picks, I haven't actually seen that one. So yeah. uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the several glaring uh, omissions in 1966 in my film watching experience. So... All right, well, I'm going to follow that one up with yet another groundbreaking film that is sure to shock and amaze people. Go on, hit me. What is it? The Man Called Flintstone. Oh, yeah. Starring one Fred Flintstone. <laughs> I don't think I've seen uh, it. It's a... It's a a Flintstones movie, which has a kind of spy storyline, man called Flintstone, like a man, you know, like oh yeah, yeah, Flint, that yeah, type yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and now this one, I actually, I, I give a little more credence to only because I'm a very big Flintstones fan. I think it's like classic animation at its at its best. Like I think it was kind of a groundbreaking show. You know, it's sort of a sit, the first real sitcom in animated form. I mean, it yeah, aired in yeah. prime time. You know, I, I think it's really just a, a you know a real piece of pop culture history. So I have I have a lot of reverence. For the Flintstones, but this was a, a movie length version that like kind of broke out of that sort of sitcom half hour format. And so again, as a kid watching this, I thought it was really exciting to kind of see this extended adventure episode of these characters that I loved, you know, doing something outside of just the normal, you know, going to the rock quarry and fighting with their wives and you know, yeah, that type yeah, of stuff. Yeah. So no, I like it. So there you go. Okay. Uh my number seven is Django, uh, directed by Sergio Corbucci and starring Franco Nero. In the title role, uh, he's the guy who's dragging the coffin behind him, the cowboy. He ends up getting mixed up in a feud between a gang of Confederate racists and a band of Mexican revolutionaries. Lots of gunfights, very, very violent. And was apparently one of the most violent films ever made at the time. And over here, it didn't get a certificate until 1993, which is a bit crazy. And it was given an 18 certificate. But in 2004, it was uh, downgraded to a 15. It's become like a cult film. uh, One part of the spaghetti western kind of films going on. And Django... It had quite a few sequels, and if you know of a little film by Quentin Tarantino called Django Unchained, we had the cameo by Franco Nero in the bar when uh, Jamie Foxx says, you know, the D is silent, that bit. But the original Django, it's a a good, violent spaghetti western. Okay, well, my number seven is The Battle of Algiers, which is a uh, a dark film about... um, 
well, a battle in Austria. <laughs> That's a political upheaval, you know, fighting. It's it's an intense film. Uh, it's one of those movies I never really wanted to watch because it didn't seem all that interesting to me. Uh, and then it came out on, I think, Blu-ray a few years back, and I, and I sat down and watched it, and I was very impressed by the, the filmmaking and the action in it and the, the kind of the passion behind it. Um, you know, it's not the kind of film that's like, hey, it's Friday night, let's call some friends over and put on some popcorn and watch, you know, this, yeah, this yeah. Battle of Algiers. But it is, I think, a very well-made movie. I know it's highly regarded in many circles. It's not a favorite favorite of mine, um, but it's certainly a movie that I respect and, and I enjoyed more than I expected to. No, an excellent pick. It's uh, it's not on my list, but it is an extremely well-made film, brilliant film. But like you said, the seconds, my, my opinion of uh, Battle of Algiers, it's sort of similar. It didn't leave me cold. It's just one that's where I appreciated watching it, but it's not one which, it's an important film, right? but it's not, not one which is in my list. Exactly. Yeah. I understand. Okay. So from that, we go to my number six, which is Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Not an important film, but a very good Tama horror film. And with uh, Christopher Lee as the Count, known as Dracula. Yes, this is the one where Dracula comes back, because we have the flashback at the start where he's been killed by Van Helsing. But this one, he comes back and does typical Dracula things. But it's the the hammer, typical hammer thing where, you know, you've got the, you've got the lurid red blood, we've got the heaving bosoms, and you've got Christopher Lee being a brilliant Dracula. Yeah, it's good campy fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Good campy fun. Excellent. Well, my number six is also good campy fun. It is One Million Years B.C. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, starring Raquel Welch as a cave girl. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's one of those films that it, it's not, I mean, it's not a great film, but it's, you know, it's cavemen fighting dinosaurs, which is super scientifically accurate. Uh, Raquel Welch in a fur bikini. I mean, really, I don't know what more you need than that. But uh, I mean, it's one of those movie images that to me, again, falls under my favorite word of iconic, you know, where uh, even if you've never seen the movie, you see a picture of Raquel Welch in a fur bikini and you, you know it, you know, cause it's such <laughs> yeah. an ingrained part of the culture. And I mean that in, in all seriousness. I'm not, I'm not being cheeky. You know, it's, uh, it's just, a, it's so such a famous image of her you know yeah, so, yeah. Um, but it's a fun it's a fun movie for what it is it's got some great stop motion you know dinosaurs and stuff like that so so it, it made it on the list no no good pick I remember seeing that many moons ago and I've not never seen it since yeah I don't I don't think it holds up spectacularly yeah, yeah. well but yeah. it, it's it's a fun it's a fun movie for for its time and for what it is yeah no good pick okay my number five is Tokyo Drifter which is uh, directed by Seijun Suzuki it's a Yakuza film and we follow uh, a Yakuza hitman who sort of turned good, or he's no longer, you know, kind of killer that he was, even though he kills lots of people. But it's a good, great film, very stylized in the way it's shot. It starts off in black and white and goes to color, and the, the main character, he's wearing like a powder blue suit for some of the film. It's got some of the style of it as well. It's uh, lots of nods to the Western, the classic Western as well. There's like big bar fights and things like that. But it's uh, it's mainly the way it's, what I liked is the way it was filmed and the, the shots and everything. And also got the cool lead character doesn't really say too much that's it's another good one if you haven't seen try and track it down all right well my number five is a movie also starring raquel welch she made it on my list twice this year and it is fantastic voyage um which is of course a a science fiction film about a a crew that is on a experimental ship that is shrunk down to microscopic size and injected into the body of a an injured scientist and they have to travel through his body to try and repair the damage and uh you know to to my mind it's kind of a science fiction classic i mean obviously effects wise and stuff it's a little cheesy a little dated today but uh i do remember watching this movie as a kid just absolutely loving it and just thinking it was so cool when they're going through the body and you're seeing all these things that you sort of recognize you know the blood cells and the the heart and the brain and everything you know it's it's just a really fun adventurous movie um that that you know i enjoy quite a bit so yeah 
that is my number five. Well, that's a good pick because it's also my number four. Oh, nice. Yeah, so Fantastic Four Voyages four for me. Uh, all for the reasons you said. It just because it was on. I remember seeing it a few months ago, and it still sort of holds up. The, yeah. the effects are a bit ropey in places, but it all it all just fits in the style of it. And I like I like the way the op- it opens up with these people being brought into this base. They're not sure what's going on, and they're just basically thrown into it. And they're going, "Well, you're going to go on this person," and they're going, "What?" But then they go <laughs> right. in and they do it. And I also like the fact that it's referenced in so many. TV shows and films and cartoons. Right. Because uh, I ended up watching the film with Hannah, and she, when we were watching it, she was going, but this was in Phineas and Ferb, and it's been in this and that, and I'm going, yeah. Right. And it's all in those things because of this film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. it was kind of groundbreaking for the time. Yeah, like, we'd yeah. never seen a film where people went inside someone else's body before, yeah. you know, and so it was, it, was, it was kind of a different thing. But, yeah, that's a, it's a classic bit of 60s sci-fi, and that was my number four. Excellent. Well, my number four has already appeared on your list, and it is Our Man Flint, um, also a movie that I enjoy very much. And, and everything you said about it is true. It is it's this great kind of James Bond parody. James Coburn is super cool. It, it's a bit cheesy and goofy, um, but I've just I've always really enjoyed it. And it's and its sequel, and uh, the, you know it's just a fun movie. And so and and as a huge James Bond fan, of course, anything that sort of is kind of tangentially related to it, I always enjoy as well. So that's my number four. Excellent. Uh, my number three is Blow Up uh, the British Italian film directed by Michelangelo Antonioni I always think I'm going to say too many Antonionis on, I'm going to say his name <laughs> Michelangelo Antonioni yeah. uh, about a fashion photographer who thinks he's caught a murder on film uh, it's got got a huge cast Vanessa Redgrave John Castle Jane Birkin uh, Sarah Miles and loads of cameos all filmed around Swinging London it's it's another one of its time. It's just this it's this vibrancy, this energy, this coolness. You know, slight detachment from what's going on. You know, because you're so cool, you're so cool. But then there's this guy who thinks he's caught a murder, trying to sort it out, trying to stay safe, trying to save people. It's just uh, it's a, a classic of its time. Very good pick. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, I, I'm ashamed to say that I've never seen Blow Up. I, I'm a big fan of Blow Out, which is uh, Brian De Palma's basically uh, sort of yeah. loose remake of yeah, it. But yeah. I, I have, and I've been meaning to get around to seeing Blow Up, but I just I never have. So it would probably be on my list had I seen yeah, well, it. Well, I, I did. I did spend a while not wanting to watch it because it was sort of the kind of film it is. You know, that setting and lots of the British. Some British movies I always find quite depressing. You know, you have the kitchen sink dramas and things like that. And I would just, right. sometimes I'm, I'm not in the mood for them at all. And I, I'd, for a long time I didn't. But then I put this one and just the style of the music and who's in it, I just I quite liked it. Sure, sure. So I surprised myself by liking it. But yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's yeah. good. Well, my number three is Batman, starring Adam West and Burt Ward. And it is, of course, based on the 1966 camp classic Batman TV show. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, you can say what you want about that show. It's obviously a very different version of Batman. It's not the the dark, grim and gritty Batman that we've all come to know and love. It's certainly very far removed from the the world of the Christopher Nolan movies. Um, and, it, you know, it, it is cheesy. But, I mean, just the scene with Batman, some days you just can't get rid of a bomb, you know, running yeah, around yeah, trying to throw exactly. the bomb away. I love that scene. Yeah, it's great. You know, it's got all the classic TV show villains, Catwoman, Joker, Penguin, Riddler. I mean, it's just a really fun, you know, uh, it's got bat helicopter versus shark i mean it's just it's so cheesy and so campy but it's just so much fun to watch like it's one of those things you watch with just a giant grin on your face you know yeah so so it made it high on my list because i i you know i grew up watching that series and absolutely loving it and so again watching this movie was this you know big scale version of this tv show that i loved so there you go and i'll point out i watched the batman tv show in reruns i'm not that old (laughs) no good pick (laughs) i do quite like the batman batman show and it's a good yeah i quite like the film as well it's good having all the bad guys together 
Right, right, yeah. exactly. Uh, but that another bomb scene as well is a is a classic. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my number two. It's a western uh, directed by Howard Hawks, and it's El Dorado, starring John Wayne, Robert Mitchum, and James Caan. It's a remake, pretty much of Rio Bravo. I just remember. I think I saw this one first before I saw Rio Bravo. But I just like the uh, the repartee between. John Wayne and Robert Mitchum, and then the young James Caan. I just like it. it. Made me laugh. Some quite funny moments, and it's John Wayne being a cowboy. There you go. Yeah. What more do you need? Well, and Robert and Robert Mitchum as well. So right, yeah. right, exactly. Quite quite the on screen pairing. Yes. Well, my number two pick is also a western, but it is a different western, uh, and it is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, of course, starring uh, Clint Eastwood as the man with no name. Um, and, I mean, really, I think that's all I need to say about it. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know what I mean? Yes, it's it's, yes. It, it's, it's the f- one of the films that launched Clint Eastwood into superstardom. It's a classic of, of the genre and any genre, and it's a very uh, well-loved film. So that's my number two. I don't think that's a big surprise to anybody. Not at all. Well, my number one is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I had a feeling. I didn't mean to steal your, steal your thunder there, but I had a feeling it might be your, your No, number. no. And it's, uh, as, as you say, it's a classic in all ways, really. I mean, you've got the, the, got the soundtrack as well by Ennio Morricone. Right. It's one of those big, long, sprawling films as well where you go, where you go, you go to put it on or you catch it on TV right at the start and you, you know how long it is, but you just go, oh, yeah, I'm going to sit and watch this and yeah, you right. just watch it all. Yep. But yeah, it's a classic. Yeah, indeed. And it's my number one. Well, my number one is Torn Curtain, directed by Alfred Hitchcock and starring Paul Newman and Julie Andrews. And uh, as I've said before on the show, I'm a huge Alfred Hitchcock fan. I'm also a big Paul Newman fan. And I don't—I know this isn't one of his most well-loved films, but I actually really like it. I mean, Paul Newman plays a scientist who supposedly defects to the Soviet Union and, his, and leaves his wife behind. And she comes over to kind of try and find out the truth. And in doing so, she sort of messes up his plans and they have to kind of go on the run and um it's just it's a great hitchcock film you know it's got a lot of suspense in it but it's also a little different it's a little bit more of an adventure film than some of his other movies uh paul newman is brilliant as always and i i I really like it i i uh it's just a film that i enjoy quite a bit and it's it's definitely to me it's hitchcock at at his best or at least near his best so that's my top pick an excellent pick and it's a it's one of hitchcock's films i've not actually seen right 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 sure well, it's worth watching. Yeah, I do probably, think probably it would be sense. in my my top ten if I've seen it. I need to. I keep meaning to track track down and watch all the uh, the Hitchcock ones I've not seen. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely one of the better ones. It's, you know, it's a little later Hitchcock. Yeah. It's after some of his best stuff, but it's uh, you know, it's definitely better than some of those like early early ones where you watch the, like some of his like super early like, yeah. silent films. You're like, oh, it's Hitchcock. And then you watch it, you're like, ah, it's not quite Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just I, some it's, guy named Al. It's always good seeing Julie Andrews and something which isn't a musical. Right, right, exactly. And she's quite good in it, too, actually. So, But her and Paul Newman on screen together are are pretty fantastic. So definitely check that one out if you have not seen it. I will do. All right. So that wraps up our top 10 films of 1966. And on that note, I think we can start to bring things to a close. Phil, tell people what we are going to be discussing on next week's show. Well, next week, because of... uh various events going on thanksgiving and what have you we've got another bonus episode where so there'll be another Quizmaster death match and it's currently three two to mike so i've got to try and beat him yeah well i'm not gonna make it easy on you sir well yeah you, you'll probably beat me because i haven't got a hope in hell <laughs> i wouldn't say that but well, i'm just saying i'm gonna i'm gonna go down fighting we'll have to see we'll have to see how the chips fall that's right and um, we'll also have another top five list yeah it's gonna be a, a little shorter as usual but it'll be a fun bonus episode and then after that we'll be back to our regular programming for uh, a few more weeks before the end of the year holidays set in but as always we'll keep you with new content coming 
every week without fail. So uh, please come back and listen to that. Yes. All right. Well, then on that note, as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. I was trying to think of a pun I could make about either Hillary or Clinton, but there's are hard words to work into. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, um, so, so new man with no name film, Clint. Oh, no, it's not going to work. <laughs> oh, it's bad. Um, I think it's Monica Lewinsky. No. no, no <laughs> just leave that all alone. Yeah. All uh, right. That's what she said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Saucy already. Yeah. I like it. I'm yeah. impressed. Well, usually we're a bit of a mess, you know, can be a bit all over the place, but, you know, and those those circumstances always say welcome to the jungle, but today we're just going to, no, that was bad, that one, forget that one. <laughs> Talk about force. See that? You, you, you garnered some goodwill with a good one there, and then you ruined it by yeah. throwing it out the window with that second one. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, welcome to Hell Dorado. Right. <laughs> okay. Cool. I have no idea what we're talking about anymore. We're so far off the track, it's not even funny. <laughs> Uh, can I just say though, when you said "Woo's the Duke," I like that line, but it made me think it could be a prequel for Escape from New York. <laughs> Woo's the Duke? Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right, anyway, you know, Escape from New York, well, the Duke. Is it I the Duke know what that? the. Oh, I guess yeah. But yeah, is it Isaac Hayes? That was a stretch, man. Woo's the Duke? That'd be a good name for a prequel film. <laughs> Whatever you say, yeah. Phil. So I'm just uh, even. Are you even drinking tonight? No, I just had a hot chocolate. I think there was too much of chocolate. Too much in sugar, it. seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. I have a couple similarities, I think, in our endings, maybe, but mm-hmm. actually there aren't. So never mind. Okay. <laughs> well, boy, man, we are on some kind of track tonight, huh? Yeah, it's weird. It's, it's looks... only going to take us seven hours to record this episode. Yeah. I'm not going to, you know, submit our our listeners to that. I think you meant subject our listeners. Subject, yeah, submit, yeah. They will submit, though. Yeah, we'll not subject. <laughs> Yeah, so those were our endings. Uh, that's going to wrap up this portion of the show. I'm terrible tonight. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to have my <laughs> editing work cut out for me this episode. <laughs> All right, I just got to shake it off, shake it off. <laughs> I, nice that my, my big, huge pop culture reference is like, you know, two years old. <laughs> well, my number 10 is, uh, um, speaking of movies, you said that that, that didn't... Uh, God. It's actually exhausting being this bad. <laughs> All right, very good. Well, my number one then is... Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> what? Well, I, don't, I don't know that one. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know that one? No. It's, it's kind of an obscure film. Yeah, I've seen the sequel, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sequel's not nearly as good.